Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, president and editor-in-chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. I'm joined by my colleague, Sarah Jerving, who's a senior reporter at DevX based in Nairobi. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Raj. How are you? Hey. Yeah, thanks for being here. And I'm also joined by a special guest, Larry Cooley, who is the president emeritus and senior advisor at Management Systems International. Larry is well-known in the Washington, D.C. global development community and well beyond that, especially for his work on scaling of solutions. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Thanks for joining us as well, Larry. Pleasure to be with all of you. So let's dive in uh, with you, Sarah, because you're in Kigali, I think, um, where women deliver the big convening, uh, I guess probably the largest convening in the world on women's rights is just wrapping up today. Is that right? It is, yes. Yeah. So it started on Sunday with the, the pre-conference events and has been going out through the week. But but yeah, so it's the Women Deliver Conference in Kigali. It's one of the largest global multi-sectoral conferences uh, focused on advancing gender equality. Um, and the conference has had um, over 6,300 attendees um, in person and then, uh, from what I understand, thousands kind of tuned in. Uh, globally. How has it gone overall, Sarah? I mean, I've been to many women deliver conferences in the past. It is a quite a feat to pull off that many thousands of people coming together. What's it like to be there in Kigali with, with all these uh, activists for gender equality? It's been really um, fascinating. It's one of the more interesting conferences that I've attended. Um, it is the first of this, uh, this conference to be held on the African continent. So I think a lot of people are really excited about that. And that kind of ties into these questions around kind of accessibility of global development, uh, uh, conferences in the sense that, you know, uh, Kigali or Rwanda has a very open uh, visa policy, so uh, um, people in the region and people globally have been able to attend. It's also one of the the largest conferences that Kigali has ever hosted, but the the country um, did a really fantastic job in kind of pulling off the logistics of it all. Um, really kind of smooth shuttle buses, and um, the the conference was able to kind of expand into. Um, to kind of uh, meet the needs of, of such a large influx of people. Um, but it, it was a whole variety of people attending the conference. So um, UN agencies, NGOs, uh, multilateral organizations, civil society groups. There was a large uh, youth contingency, I think over 1,200 of the um, uh, the people involved uh, attended were were youth, and this is the first women deliver conference that youth have been invited to attend. Um, and some of the topics have been, you know, sexual and reproductive health, gender based violence, um, uh, gender identity, financial inclusion. Um, really, some interesting and high level speakers attended. So we had Malala um, from the Malala Fund. We had Stacey Abrams. Um, 
uh, Abraham's UNFPAs had Natalia Keenum, Helen Clark, Mary Robinson. And then to close us off, we had a, a, a video message from um, Michelle Obama. But there was also a, a lot of really like creative performances and wellness activities and um, just a really, really nice vibe and interesting place to be this week. I, I want to get back in a second to the substance of the conference, but maybe just to bring you into it, Larry, I know you and I did not attend this year at Women Deliver, but you have been to your share of these global convenings. And there's been a big theme in global development for many years, but it's, it feels like it's reached kind of a crescendo, which is around localization and decolonization. And part of that push is to say, hey, these global summits can't just be in Washington and London. They've got to be in places like Kigali. On the other hand, it's complicated and potentially even more expensive to do a lot of these events in the global south because of all the challenges of travel and the logistics. Kigali, you know, happens to have a, a pretty big conference center. That's not the case everywhere else. I, I guess I'd love to get your take, having been to a lot of these, on do you think this is the beginning of a more persistent trend where these global convenings will be in places like Rwanda? Or do you think it's going to be a mix or do we end up doing just a lot more virtual? What, what's your feeling about this, Larry? I think it's an important step. I think it's a very important step and I hope that we see a lot more of it. You know, the, this movement toward inclusion has got dimensions that I think we're only beginning to explore. But clearly it matters who the messenger is, but it matters almost equally what the venue is and I think those of us who've kind of thought we had a handle on these issues before have realized it's much more complicated than we imagined, particularly when it hinges in some way on the notion of agency or the notion of entitlement. And it was really so clear to me following Sarah's reporting, which by the way I thought was wonderful on this, that this conference, both on the youth side and on the gender side, had in many cases the argument that the messenger was the message and that there was no way to move to inclusion without hearing different voices and sometimes stridently different voices. I think that is, was very much augmented by having it in Kigali rather than somewhere else. Yeah, that's a really fascinating point. And global development, I think before even this movement around localization and decolonization reached this level of kind of fever pitch, global development itself has shifted a lot. I and mean, if you think about who works in organizations like the one that you helped to create, Management Systems International, other implementing partners or NGOs. I mean, the, the teams, the professionals now are largely in the global south. And yet the power centers, the authority, the budgets are directed out of, you know, global capitals and the global north for the most part. So in some ways, this is a catch up to where the industry in terms of personnel and expertise has been headed. But I guess I wonder, you know, given that this is a big movement, Larry, what, what your feeling is about kind of where we are in it. Um, you know, is this like, have we reached this kind of tipping over point where everyone acknowledges this is just the way it ought to be? These voices, as you say, these messengers uh, need to be uh, the, the people who are closest to the issues, more proximate to the issues, or, or do you think there's still a debate here? What's your feeling of where we are? I think we're at the end of the beginning of this, to tell you the truth. Uh, you know, my experience on this and on other issues that are essentially right space is that they don't shift easily and they don't shift exactly copacetically. Usually what happens is you either swing past the point of equilibrium or you stop short of it. And people who are fighting for, I think legitimately fighting for voice on this thing don't usually have it handed to them. And so I don't think we're done with the, with the churn on this. I think it's gonna be uncomfortable for a while and I think we'll be the better for it. 
And Sarah, maybe that is, you know, mirrored in what we're seeing in the in the gender equality movement more broadly, right? The context for this this summit, it's obviously people coming together who firmly believe in gender equality, but the context, the political context globally has gotten much worse. I think it'd be fair to say in the last few years, lots of pushback and backlash on women's rights, on LGBTQ plus rights, on abortion rights. How, how was the mood at the conference around that reality of the context shifting, even as this was a gathering, probably a pretty hopeful gathering of, of activists who believe in these issues? Yeah, that was a huge part of the conversation was kind of anti-rights opposition groups and kind of um, one of the messages that I, I heard quite frequently was the need to kind of um, map out groups, understand their funding sources, and for the feminist movement to be more strategic in countering it. Um, I think there was a kind of in discussion around, well, there was, yeah, in discussion around um, abortion, I think, you know, the, uh, the U.S. decision uh, has weighed heavily on the, the global conversation around um, abortion access and the conversation about how it has emboldened um, uh, these kind of anti-abortion groups across the world. Um, uh, I think there was a little bit of a pushback on that narrative in some sense as well. We, um, we were, uh, we co-hosted an event with the, at the Center for Reproductive Rights and, um, to discuss abortion access. And, um, uh, one of their speakers, you know, talked about in the, in the kind of macro trajectory, trajectory, um, countries are moving towards, um, improving access, whereas four countries have gone um, in the opposite direction. So there was a bit of a mixture of kind of, um, we need to be more strategic, um, but also kind of actually looking at um, at progress in access issues. Um, I also, uh, you know, I did an interview with uh, the head of Women Deliver, uh, Dr. Maliha Khan, and one of the um, kind of points she had made in that interview and in other points during the conference was that um, kind of the feminist uh, movement is uh, kind of um, quick to to criticize different, uh, you know, factors within the feminist movement. And um, she said that kind of anti-rights movements and opposition groups are, you know, they might agree on only 2% of, uh, you know, whatever they, if they're kind of against uh, trans individuals, they will agree on that. And then they will be very strategic in kind of going after that um, issue. So her, her messaging was that um, feminist movements need to kind of be uh, more cohesive and not um, kind of try to tear each other apart and uh, be more strategic. Raj, I wonder if I could add a word on that. For a number of years on this issue of implementing policy change, and that has everything to do with trying to build up the momentum as well as the capacity to move large shifts through big societies. And it's most challenging on the rights-based initiatives because the rights-based initiatives are almost always values-based. And it's easy to look for people who are like-minded on this, but it's tempting to stop with the people who are who are like-minded, and that's almost never a sufficient coalition to make the change happen. In fact, that's the coalition that made the status quo happen. 
in order to move it somewhere else, you need to make somehow common cause with people who you don't necessarily think you agree with initially, but you agree with sufficiently around some set of things to move forward. And in my experience, that's most difficult for the rights-based conversations precisely because they are so deeply value-rooted. Yeah, that's a fascinating point. And maybe that's kind of their Achilles heel. If you look at how politics is shifting rightward around the Western countries, um, and a lot of those rightward shifts are leading to less funding for the very issues that rights groups are arguing for. And so it's a fascinating point. And, and it's, I, I read that interview with Malia Khan, um, uh, Sarah, and I think it is an interesting point she's making that we have to think about, okay, we may have very clear views that are kind of non-negotiable on values, but how do those translate into a political strategy for organizations that ultimately depend on funding from official donor agencies and policies that are passed by legislatures uh, or by you know authoritarian governments around the world? So it's a fascinating question. And uh, you could even see it on the debate stage from, from a distance with the uh, the invitation to the Hungarian president, Katalin Novak, to speak at the opening ceremony, who comes from that right-leaning perspective uh, in Hungary, has a very clear kind of traditional view of women's roles in society, and yet was on the stage at Women Deliver, you know, invited by the Rwandan government. So it, it was kind of playing out in real time, exactly what Larry's talking about. Hi, I'm Kate Warren, Executive Editor at DevEx. If you are listening to this podcast, you are likely working to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals. But are you subscribed to DevEx Newswire? Global development can be a fast-moving, complex sector. Our team of global reporters work every day to bring you the news you need to make sense of it all. In DevEx Newswire, we keep you up to date on issues ranging from climate change financing to gender equality and global health to transforming the food system all in a fun-to-read, free newsletter delivered directly to you five days a week. Join the hundreds of thousands of global development professionals who receive DevEx Newswire and visit devex.com newsletters to sign up to this free newsletter today. Maybe we could shift gears a little bit because while we have you, Larry, I'd love to get your take on a couple of the other big stories of the week. You know, we had an event with Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs on Friday um, and you know, as you might expect, a lot of the conversation was around localization. Uh, Congresswoman Jacobs, you know, probably more knowledgeable on this topic than just about anybody in the U.S. Congress, having worked in the global development sector as a global development professional for years. Um, and she has her own localization bill she's putting forward. She's a big proponent of the idea. You know, the USAID arguably is kind of the leading bilateral agency on this topic right now, at least in terms of their rhetoric. Um, how do you feel that's going uh, Larry, what's your what's your take on where we are in the localization uh, conversation? Well, again, I think this is evidence of the churn that's going on in the development space right now. I, this issue, is, as some of your listeners will know, has circled around several times before the localization issue with different names and different times and different focus points. However, I think this one really has a momentum that I've not seen before, in part because realities on the ground are so different. If you look at the role of domestic resource mobilization in comparison to foreign assistance, and you look at the role of the private sector compared to the public sector, and you look at the role of capable, capable people in these countries, even the ones that started latest in the development trajectory, it simply isn't the same world repeating again. And I think, as you mentioned about the women's issue, I think in some ways we're catching up 
on this issue. I do think that it's the debate is still pretty confused. And in particular, the two goals that you say it has set for itself, the goal related to local implementing partners and the goal related to local voice, I think haven't quite found a balance point yet. And for me, by far, the more profound of the two is the local voice issue. And that's difficult to do as long as you're operating in a space that's so compliance oriented and there's so many earmarks and initiatives of the administration where the basic parameters are set centrally. The space that's left for local voices of any sort, this is not a question of shifting it from international contractors to local contractors or international NGOs to local NGOs, it's shifting it from control by the agency control to more control by the beneficiaries and the recipients of this. And I think that will be a difficult row for to hold. I hope very much that Congresswoman Jacobs can move that ahead. Uh, on the issue more narrowly of simply transferring the implementation partnerships to local, I'm pretty confident that's going to continue to move, maybe not quite as quickly as some people had wished, but I think meaningfully and significantly for some time to come. I mean, you helped to create one of the most successful implementing partners, MSI. What, what's your take on what it's going to mean for the implementing partners you know, in Washington, D.C., in that kind of USAID ecosystem, how will they look differently maybe a decade from now or five years from now versus the way they looked in the past? Well, this is a, what I'm going to say is a pretty uh, controversial view, and I'm not sure I'm right about it. But I don't think we're going to have what we see today as development firms if we go a decade or two into the future. I think we'll have agriculture and education and health and family planning and fiber optics and telecommunications all of which have markets and applications in the development world. And in some cases, there'll be people with incentives to help fund in a concessionary way aspects of that work. But I don't think the broad-based notion of international development will have the same traction it had over the last 50 or 60 years because the circumstance is different. The countries aren't solicited in that, and in many ways, they don't need it. Uh, so as long as there are development projects, there's going to be somebody implementing those development projects. And I think there's an ongoing role for firms like the one I used to head in playing active roles in that. But increasingly, it's got to be responsive to the context that you're working into and what the capabilities are on the ground there. The long run solution to any of these problems is not projects. The long run solutions is having host governments and local markets or markets do the things that they need to do in those places and everything else is transitional. You know, it's, it is a controversial view, I'm sure, for people who work in those organizations today and try to imagine that kind of transition. But I think you're so right about the issue around projects and uh, how they define the sector in ways that may be really fundamentally counterproductive to what development is trying to achieve. And, and it's you know understandable why this industry has been built around projects, given all the government funding and government funding has to have time limits on it. It has to have milestones and compliance and all the rest. But but sure, it sure seems like um, a millstone in some ways around the neck of the sector in terms of making progress. But I, I would say it's a it's a heavier millstone. It's serving as a heavier millstone than it needs to. You mentioned before that work that I've been doing for about a decade now on on scaling, and one of the lessons from that is not that you need to move entirely away from project formulations, but that you can think about projects as instruments of change and ways to make permanent changes on the ground in ways that I think donors don't typically do. It's got a role in 
philanthropy, in private philanthropy, and I think it's got a substantial role in official development assistance. And since even though foreign aid is a very small portion now of most countries' budgets, it's often a big portion of the discretionary budget. So when you're trying to actually make a shift, having somebody who's really your partner and helping to make that shift and helping to do the things that have to happen over that transition to make it permanent and sustainable, I think that's the role for projects going forward, which is, a, I think, a noble role, but it's different than the way most projects are framed today. We had another piece this week, and I don't know if either of you have thoughts about it, uh, about BRAC International. And we spoke with Shamaran Abed, who's the executive director there. I think by at least the measure of staff size, BRAC is the world's largest international NGO. They have like 120,000 employees around the world. They were founded in Bangladesh. That's still where the majority of their people are. But they are now in 10 countries. According to uh, Abed, he says they're growing to 20 countries around the world, including in Africa and Asia. I guess I'm curious, is our conversation even around localization, especially in the USAID context, is it maybe itself a little bit too old fashioned using an old frame, you know, where we say you're either local or you're US based and where does an organization like BRAC fit in? Um, should maybe they should, if they are moving into countries around Africa and they're coming from the global South, maybe they should be advantaged in a way, even though they're not necessarily local. I'm curious if either of you have a take on that. I think the BRAC case is such a fascinating case and I don't think we've really gotten to the bottom of it yet. I don't think we know quite yet how to think about organizations that in some way were born in the global south but see their mission and mandate as international the way many of the countries in the United States and Europe do. Uh, the, in the worst case, they simply become mini-me's or not even mini-me's, they're maxi-me's, but they're another version of the same thing. They're equally foreign to the countries where they operate and they're equally divorced from local voice in the places where they where they operate, in which case I think the localization argument applies to them the same way it would to any of the rest of us. But if to some extent there's an ability to garner in some of these countries a capacity that both uh, embodies the lived realities uh, of the countries where they're operating and doesn't substitute for it, I think there's a real potential upside to this. The, the thing I would add into that, though, is I think the, the use of some U.S. intermediation, besides the technical value, has had a really strong impact on the United States in a positive way, in the sense that I think it's led to a number of our institutions being connected in the countries where we work. It's led to a number of people having more I would say global views of problems and how to solve them than would otherwise have been the case. So I hope the effect of this is not the U.S. to pull back from active engagement technically as well as financially in these countries, but rather to see if we can broaden the playing field to see who brings what to these interactions. Yeah, Sarah, I mean, you, you're based in Nairobi, so you get to see it from the perspective of a pretty dynamic country and city. Uh, a lot of international NGOs now have major offices, some have headquarters there. H how does the localization debate look to you from there? I think a lot of the the international organizations in, um, in Nairobi, based in Nairobi, have been kind of pushing for, uh, you know, not bringing as many expats in and really focusing on um, ensuring that the expertise in the region 
are um, kind of being promoted and giving leadership roles. But I think, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of, there's still like the bureaucracy of, of the UN system and other kind of major organizations that don't really necessarily give a lot of this kind of leadership and the employees within um, kind of this context as much say in shaping the vision as perhaps um, would be beneficial to the programming. Um, so I think that could be a, a way to, um, you know, really, really make sure that um, kind of the, the, the drive of an organization is localized as well. Yeah, it kind of gets back to what Larry was saying about the difference between those two goals at USAID, you know, the kind of technical goal of how much money goes to quote unquote local orgs versus the maybe the more fundamental goal, which is local voice and ownership over the work. And that's a lot squishier and harder to get to. And there's every chance you miss it by just, you know, checking the box and saying, look, this money went to a local group or look, this UN agency has X percent local professionals at the right level. And, uh, and yet fundamentally we don't shift the space. Um, maybe I can just shift gears to a somewhat related topic in a way, which is about the, the world health organization and get your, you to update us on this, Sarah. Um, there's there's apparently a move underway to change the the staff rotation system there. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about that and what some of the implications are. From what I understand, is um, kind of the the WHO is uh, pushing its employees to to move around um, and kind of rather than staying in in a location, and that's problematic for employees. Is that? Yeah, you've got it. I mean, they're. From what I understand from our reporting, Jenny Lee Ravello has wrote an exclusive on this this week, is that WHO staff, according to a new policy, um, might be required to move duty stations every two to five years. And, you know, it's caused obviously some real internal consternation because it's going to change a lot of people's personal lives. Uh, and so there's been some real pushback. But then there's also been people, according to her reporting, that say, hey, we need to do this because if you're going to run an international organization, you need people moving around so that they can get experience in different places. They can apply knowledge and learnings from one place to the next, and they don't kind of get stagnant and that there's a real need to do this um, to make the World Health Organization, as they say, more diverse, efficient and flexible. Um, I, I, you know, Larry, you, you know, a lot of these international organizations very well. And these kinds of debates have happened at others like the World Bank, which has tried to decentralize for a long time. Do you have a take on how these organizations ought to be structured in this era? I think the the movement to decentralization is is right and, and unavoidable. But one consequence that doesn't get talked about much is the effects on recruitment by the organizations, because essentially you need people who either have a have a family or a family situation that allows them to pick up and move with some frequency or people who find that an attractive feature of the of the job and, and ha having a number of friends in these positions, I can tell you it has changed in a significant way the people who apply and make careers with the organizations. It's going to be interesting over time to see whether that's a net benefit or a net cost, but it's definitely a change. Yeah, a lot of these Bretton Woods orgs or UN orgs were founded in an era when most of the top professional roles went to men. Often women's careers, if they had one, was secondary to the man's career. And so I think they still exist in a lot of these international organizations, kind of spousal groups that are supposed to help the spouse who's trailing with, uh, you know, with their partner to find work or figure out their living situation in a, in a country when they have to move duty stations. 
But boy, things have really shifted since then. And in fact, one staffer at the town hall, Jenny quotes as saying, will my wife's career as a CEO level professional in the private sector be impacted by our decision to pursue mobility? Must I make a choice between advancing my career and supporting her career? And that's probably now the common situation is that people's I, I life think circumstances it is exactly. have really changed. Yeah, I think that's exactly the common situation. And I can remember years ago when Marina and I were starting MSI, we did a study of spousal uh, arrangements within USAID. And we found a total of nine that were directly affected. Now I bet you'd find 900, 1900, and that's in the space of just a few decades. Yeah, I just wanted to add. So I, I, I mean, I live in a city that ha is very transient in terms of people being on two-year contracts and moving to the next location. And that is something I, I agree very much with Larry that I think um, organizations and in institutions are missing out on some great talent because people are just not willing to do that. Um, and I, I think there is something to be said about kind of really um, – you know, knowing the context, having great, um, you know, great networks within a country and that kind of facilitating um, more effective uh, programming and partnerships. So I think there there's an argument that um, kind of moving people around could could be problematic in that sense, too. Yeah, it's definitely a live debate and one we will we will keep covering at WHO and elsewhere. It's been great to have all of you. I thought maybe give you a chance, Larry, to give us some, some closing thoughts if you have any. We're looking forward to you know, some of the big convenings, the G20 and UN General Assembly, COP is coming up. Uh, what are some of the big things on, on your mind these days? Well, I'll, I'll mention two. One is I think the concept of the, the whole development debate is changing as dramatically as I've ever seen it in my career, particularly with the nexus of climate, development, peace, food, and humanitarian crisis. I mean, it, people have talked about nexus, but it's kind of like nexus on steroids. Now, and a lot of these issues involve global public goods and not a clear distinction between what we would once have called the global north and the global south. So I think whose voice, what issue, in which venues, all that stuff is in play in ways I've rarely seen before, maybe never seen before. And I think it's going to play out in each and every one of these convenings in one way or another. The other smaller but I think important issue I'd like to plug is the one you, you mentioned before, Raj, about scaling. And I think there's finally some genuine traction on that issue and beginning to think about how donors in particular can do something as part of their standard practice that would make lasting impact and not simply see it as a series of balkanized projects is an issue whose time has come and i'm hopeful that will also find its way into a lot of the current conversations yeah me too and, and that is one of the recurrent themes uh, when you get together with global development leaders and professionals that hey we know certain things really work why aren't they everywhere why hasn't it spread everywhere and you know there's some really good answers to those questions these days including from from you and your colleague johannes lynn and, and the group you convene of of experts around scaling and now it's just a question of kind of getting those ideas out there. And uh, as you say, maybe we're at a turning point. It's been really great to talk with you, Larry. Uh, Larry Cooley, thank you so much for taking the time to join This Week in Global Development. Sarah, uh, thank you as well. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening in. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, 
become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com slash membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.